The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by our friend, colleague, bona fide fiscal policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Always good to be here. So Liz, I want to say at the top of this episode of the pod, kudos to you for, as the kids say, showing out. Lots of great work as of late on, long story short, on Route 50, all of your work up in South Bend, lots of really great stuff happening and it's wonderful to see. Uh, some of what you're reporting on, connecting back to some themes that we've covered here on the pod and vice versa. Great stuff. Always good to see. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the nod, too. Uh, I'm especially proud of the the stuff I've been doing on, on Chester, Pennsylvania. That, that continues to fascinate me. Yeah, that's right. And these are, of course, topics that fascinate all of us. And uh, thanks for, I guess, an inadvertent commercial there. We'll be covering <laughs> some of these same themes on on some future podcasts. So great to see. Well, this, this is the public money pod and our job is of course to talk about the state and local government finance. And we like to talk about the fact that state and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. Of course, that means they also collect $4 trillion because they have to run balanced budgets for the most part. And when we think about the largest governments out there in the state and local government landscape, you probably think large states like, say, California, New York, or Texas, or big cities like a Chicago, or a New York City, or a Los Angeles, or maybe large counties, or large school districts. These are our big general purpose governments out there. They're certainly big, and they occupy an important part of the, of the landscape. But it's not maybe well known that 17% of the total amount of revenues that are collected by uh, state and local governments each year are collected by special districts. Let me say that again, 17% of the total amount, 17% of that $4 trillion worth of revenues is collected by special districts. These are levels of government, individual units of government that are typically created to do one thing, or at least have a very narrow scope of services, sometimes more than that, but for the most part, they're doing one thing and they generate a lot of revenue in the course of doing that one thing. These are our public hospital districts, sometimes our uh, very large universities in some cases count as as uh, special districts. You could even go so far as to go all the way to the to the ground level, things like mosquito abatement districts, a whole range of activities that are covered by special districts. And when we look at the municipal bond market, we often find ourselves confronting of several very large issuers in the bond market every year. In fact, some of the largest, if not the largest, bond issues that happen in a given year, at least on a, on a par value basis, on the amount of money borrowed basis, are done by very large special districts. 
2022, 2023, for instance, you think about the Metropolitan Transit Authority in New York, the DASNY, the Dormitory, Dormitory Authority of the state of New York, the Triborough Bridge Authority, they come before even the state of California or the state of New York with respect to the amount of borrowing that they've done. And even beyond that, the California's university system, the California Board of Regents, in some years has borrowed even more money than the state of California itself. So special districts have a, a very large portfolio of services and they spend a lot of money and they borrow a lot of money. Not necessarily a well-known fact in the world of public money. So it's important to talk about special districts and the important place that they occupy in the world of public finance. Now I know Liz, you've done quite a bit of work over the years studying, reporting on special districts. When you think about their role within the context of local government finance, what's top of mind? Okay. I feel like I need to take this piece one by one because when you said, how much debt was it that the special districts issue every year? It's about 17% of the total revenue collected by state and local government. So 17% of that $4 trillion worth of revenue is collected by special districts. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, my jaw dropped. I, I feel like that's something that I maybe should have known, but had no clue it was, it was that much money. Um, I think, I think everyone listening to, to kind of those examples that you just gave was probably surprised by most, if not all of them. And I think that exactly speaks to that, that point of special districts are just this kind of like, uh, unexamined really, a uh, little corner of, of municipal finance that only really gets looked at when something happens happens. And as a journalist, I can say, for sure, I mean, first of all, most journalists uh, covering state and local government for a newspaper generally uh, kind of do a, have a cursory knowledge of public finance, like I did when I first started at Governing, but don't get the opportunity to really just like spend a lot of time in the weeds there. Special districts, that's like way, 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 way out in the weeds. In, in you know, in my general, uh, general experience, they just don't come up a lot. And so what that means is that journalists aren't paying attention, taxpayers probably aren't paying attention. There's not much um, of the fourth estate accountability thing going on there that can can bring shed more light and bring transparency to the finances of special districts. And in fact, special district spending accounts for that much of, of what state and local governments overall spending is. That to me says there's, there's that we need to close that gap. Um, and then, like I said, something comes up when something happens. And so, of course, uh, Disney and, and the, the back and forth between its special, special district of Reedy Creek and Governor Santos of Florida, uh, the conflict there, that's when we all started paying attention to at least the Reedy Creek special district. But for me personally, I did. I went on like a little primer of special districts and how long they've been around and how many are there in Florida and all that kind of thing. And so... Um, I guess at least when something happens, it, it does tend to promote at least temporary knowledge of what they are and what they're doing. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points. The, the kerfuffle in Florida has been fun to watch. Of course, a kerfuffle to bring a, some chicken uh, imagery back into the podcast. The kerfuffle in Florida last uh, last year happened really before this podcast was up and running. We, I'm sure we would have commented on it back then if if there had if, if there had been a podcast to, to to comment on. But of course, we've been watching it, and now there's been some recent developments that have put it back both in the in the headlines, but also have forced those of us in the state and local public finance world to think a little bit more carefully about 
what happened relative to what might have happened. And it's a great time to take stock of not just the goings on in, in Florida, but also the broader questions that this raises about special districts and special district finance and the relationships between states and special districts, which in so many ways has become the the key consideration in this uh, in this Florida kerfuffle. The, the fact that the state is able to get as directly involved as it is just reminds us that in so many ways, special districts are creations of the state and, and don't necessarily have a lot of the same powers that, say, a city or a county government might have, depending on the state in which it's located. So it's an interesting thing to watch from both a public finance perspective, but also from an intergovernmental relations perspective. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Professor Chris Goodman from Northern Illinois University. Professor Goodman, thanks for joining us. That's my pleasure. So you are a specialist in the world of special districts or public authorities or any of the number of other terms we use to uh, describe this particular corner of the world of local government. I'm wondering if you could just, to start off for anyone in our audience who might not be familiar, when we talk about special districts, uh, what do we mean by that? And at a very high level, what are some of the, you know, in your mind, some of the key trends that we ought to be thinking about when we think about how special districts fit into the landscape of state and local government finance? Sure. So uh, what is a special district is a, uh, a question that is fraught with uh, a bunch of definitional concerns. Uh, kind of at its core, a special district tends to be a single function local government over some geographic area. But once you get further uh, into that, it gets a lot more complicated. So um, the, the definition that I tend to use is independent special districts. They have their own uh, elected or appointed boards. They control their own financial destinies. Uh, that's different from dependent special districts that are more, more similar to a component unit of a sponsoring state or local government. Um, you could also have public authorities, which tend to be state or interstate level entities that are uh, specifically chartered um, outside of uh, enabling legislation that might uh, allow a more general or um, specific special district to be uh, created anywhere within a particular state. Folks like me and, and some others tend to have pretty strong disagreements about what counts in what bucket. Um, leading to some very large confusion over how many of these things actually exist. So sometime last year, I believe, uh, the Civic Federation in, uh, in Chicago uh, came out with what they thought was an inventory of all the special districts in the, in the state of Illinois. Um, the Civic Fed added in a bunch of dependent special districts and township uh, special districts um, and came up with a much larger number than what the Census Bureau said and even what the state really thinks of as special districts. So there's a lot of confusion about what these things are. And this isn't limited just to Illinois. It happens in New York, California, and all kinds of other large states that have large numbers of these. Uh, in terms of trends, um, we've seen a big growth in special districts over the kind of the long term. So starting 1950s or so, the first special districts really pop up in the uh, early 1900s port authorities, things like that, that are separate from municipal governments, uh, but really kind of take off in the, the post-World War II era. Um, we see a massive growth through the 70s and 80s, and then somewhat slower growth in the 90s and early 2000s. And uh, into the 2010s, we essentially have net zero growth in, in special districts nationwide. 
uh, some of my own work has looked at kind of what those look like, um, what are the characteristics of those governments. The earlier ones tend to be larger in terms of um, how much they're spending and kind of their physical footprint, and the ones closer to to current tend to be smaller and much more specialized in terms of what they're uh, the policy area that they're tackling. That we we've seen a somewhat of a change as to what special districts look like. Um, they come and go. That's another kind of defining feature. They exist to solve a problem typically, and once that problem's gone, the district winds down at debt, its debt and and leaves. They're a, a much more dynamic form of local government um, than, say, a municipality that doesn't really alter its its being all that often. They exist and they very rarely dissolve, similar with counties and things like that. What uh, accounts for that leveling off of the of the number of districts in the, the last few years? Uh, so that's a great question, um, and we don't really know. I'm I'm in the process of trying to sort through what those uh, reasons might be. Um, kind of the running hypothesis is that all of the big problems that special districts in the 70s and 80s were created to solve, largely big infrastructure problems, are not finished, but are uh, kind of of lesser concern. We've built the infrastructure, so it's the need to have a district to actually build it doesn't exist. And it may make more sense to transfer that infrastructure to someone else to maintain it. So it, that's one of many hypotheses about why these things exist um, or, or cease to exist, I guess. Uh, another one being that there just isn't demand for public services in that manner any longer. Chris, it sounds like so special districts, uh, you know, I think water, sewer, these, these special purposes uh, that, that you described, that to me makes sense but are there other kinds of special different districts that have might might not quite fit into that category sure so uh the the two biggest offenders for kind of policy areas for special districts are are water and fire districts so those are the most common um, independent special districts in the u.s uh, but we can create special districts or states allow special districts to be created in all kinds of areas uh, from very general to very specific so a recent invention are multi-purpose special districts or multi-function special districts that are empowered to do many things similar to a municipality, um, but don't have the full powers of a municipality. So they typically don't have, uh, say, zoning powers, for instance. And these are uh, created to directly facilitate development. So in Florida, Texas, Colorado, those kind of big three states uh, have districts like this that are uh, primarily exists to create the infrastructure for residential development, issue bonds to to support all of that, uh, set up a taxing structure to repay those bonds, and then eventually kind of transition those districts to the the residents of those areas to, to ultimately administer. On the more specific side, we uh, have historically created special districts to, to do very particular things in very particular times. So my perhaps my favorite uh, version of this are mosquito abatement districts, largely created to combat cholera in the early 1900s. Uh, many of them don't exist anymore, um, but a lot of them do, including in my own area, that uh, exist solely to spray for mosquitoes. Uh, these were very uh, common, and now there are a handful of them left in Illinois, and uh, a lot of those functions have been transferred to townships, actually. Um, some of my coworkers like to harp on uh, cemetery districts. They exist solely to operate a, a public cemetery. 
that probably isn't burying anyone in it any longer. It just exists to maintain uh, a piece of grass um, with headstones. So it, it, they they kind of range in terms of what they do. Obviously, we're, we're probably not fighting cholera anymore. But cure, I mean, if you're in a mosquito abatement district, do you not have as many mosquitoes? Does it actually work that way? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, so that's actually the perhaps the the bigger issue with special districts is do they work? Do we get what we what we are ultimately paying for? Um, I think in the in the mosquito abatement district example specifically, yes. So the the places where they're most common are places where mosquitoes are still an issue. So like Florida, for instance, you know you have a half of the state that's effectively a swamp. So if they, in theory, if they weren't functioning, we would figure out another way to provide that service. That being said, some of these just kind of get forgotten about and just float along forever. Uh, there are some great examples online that you can go go find recorded uh, meetings of these smaller special districts that have no one attend the meetings. The uh, elected or appointed officials go through the entire the entire process of administering a public meeting through their their open our open meetings laws. They go through the motions and adjourn and go on like nothing happened. That being said, a, a, a good chunk of them do dissolve. Uh, uh, either through some kind of direct public action uh, or through the state dissolving them. You mentioned the the sort of performance and accountability questions surrounding them. Wondering if we could focus just for a second on the on the fiscal piece of it. You know, what does what does your research or or others' research tell us about uh, whether having all of these special districts means that we spend more, are taxed more, uh, have more debt? Is there you know, relative to what it would be without all of these specialized governments? What do we know about the the broader fiscal landscape at the local level? Right. So there's a there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, so at the the basic level, special districts overlap themselves and uh, and all other forms of local government. So you end up with a, a vertical stacking of governments. It's the the fundamental problem. Uh, and these districts aren't necessarily providing services that are different than a municipality or a county might provide, uh, but they're providing them in a very different situation in, in terms of um, kind of their budgeting and fiscal process and that we're, we've doled out these services into each into their own individual uh, political processes, essentially for setting taxing and, and spending. That kind of uncoordinated nature may lead to overly large budgets for each one of these particular uh, services just because they they don't face budget competition essentially um, there's no there's no one saying I have to weigh fire against water if they're in two separate special districts um, where if those are provided by a municipality you might actually have to weigh that in a budget and say we have a revenue constraint how do we provide these two services as efficiently as we can if there are no revenue constraints because you have your own taxing power they might become overly large so there's some some evidence that that is the case, um, and if we simply made them coordinate better, that might go away. The you know, the secondary problem is that special districts often exist outside of existing fiscal limitations on municipalities and counties. So if the state says you municipalities can only raise X uh, amount or change your levy by some percentage um, per year, typically special districts don't fall within those laws, and they have generally become a common way to evade those laws is that uh, municipalities essentially outsource their um, service delivery to a collection of special districts that exist outside of those fiscal limitations, allowing that spending and taxing to happen 
in the face of the state trying to prevent it. The evidence for that is a little mixed, but the kind of theoretically makes a, a lot of sense. So we have this kind of uncoordinated nature in terms of taxing and spending, and then we have this circumvention of, of state limitations that may lead special districts maybe not to be the best way to provide services if there's another kind of more integrated way of actually doing that that's a little more transparent, uh, a little more approachable to uh, the common kind of resident or voter, and then ends up uh, kind of creating a more efficient system. The, the flip side of that is that specialization in terms of service delivery might actually lead to efficiency. Um, you become better at your job in terms of providing that public service because that's all you have to spend your time doing. If that's the case, then there might be some merit to providing services that way. Even if it is higher cost, you get better services as a result. Uh, the problem is, is we have a hard time kind of differentiating between those things. We don't have a great idea whether service provision by a special district is more efficient um, or of higher quality than uh, by a municipality, for instance. And that's that's something that I've personally been trying to sort out in my own research. And I think that's something that taxpayers are really interested in. Of They may be willing to put up with this horribly complicated, fragmented local political system if it means the services that they're being provided are better um, and cost less, essentially. Um, we just don't really know that. Do how do do taxpayers notice a special special district taxes? Like if I'm if I'm looking at my property tax bill, would I see the tax there? Would I see it on a sales tax? And and do people even notice these things? <laughs> right. So that's kind of the bigger uh, transparency question: is uh, special districts essentially come in two flavors: ones that levy a property tax and ones that levy a user charge. The property tax version is quite transparent, subject to you looking at your tax bill and being able to understand all of the various millage rates being charged to your piece of property. I like to play a game with my students where I bring in uh, property tax bills and try to get them to identify all of the governments on them. And they, my students, local government management students largely, have a difficult time doing that, even though they, they exist in this world very concretely. So even the experts have a, a difficult time sorting through that. And that problem is compounded somewhat um, if you have user fees, at least for some services. Water is an obvious one. You get a water bill, you kind of understand how that works. Uh, but for some of these others, it may be a little kind of less transparent. Sounds like we need to take your game show on the road and, and educate folks uh, <laughs> about the the layers of their property tax bill. Who knows? Like, might have a might have a hit hit show on our head. Yeah, uh, and <laughs> the 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 fun ones are always the the special districts that don't really do anything or do anything um, for a service that that people consume. The really obvious ones, you know, like fire is easy. You know, if you live in a fire district, that's how you're going to get fire services. Uh, oftentimes, the these kind of more unknown ones are either very tiny or very large. So you live in a area with, say, a mosquito abatement district, and you're like, I don't know. They usually don't have a name called mosquito abatement district. It is something that is significantly less descriptive, and you might not be able to identify that on your uh, property tax bill. Or it might be something large. Say, for instance, your county has an airport authority, 
and you're trying to figure out why you're paying for a municipal airport that has no commercial flights. So the, they, they kind of run the gamut of hyper-local to kind of much more regional in terms of allowing people to sort through that of, well, that municipal airport is an hour for me. I live in a large county. Why is that on my tax bill? Or this little tiny special district I don't know exists, a drainage district that exists to uh, essentially pull the gunk out of your the ditches on the side of the road. Well, I don't know why I'm paying for that, but that's dealing with water runoff and you probably don't need to think about that all much as, as long as it is happening. You certainly notice when it isn't happening. Right, right. And that's generally when people educate themselves a little bit more is something happens um, and they go, well, why isn't that happening? Who should I talk to? And they go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, let's get into the reason we're all here, which is Disney, of course. <laughs> and Chris, I'm sure you, you've done your share of interviews before about this. But for the sake of our listeners who who may not have heard about what, what went down in Florida uh, between the governor and, the, and the, the Reedy Creek Special District, can you just kind of briefly walk us through the conflicts that happened there, um, and including the the push to to restore restructure spe special districts in the, in the state. Sure. So uh, Disney has a uh, essentially an associated special district it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District, it straddles two counties uh, outside of Orlando. And about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, the governor of Florida got uh, very upset with Disney uh, because Disney inserted themselves into um, some social issues that were kind of to the opposite of what the governor was trying to do. And the legislature essentially eliminated the Reedy Creek Improvement District, along with about six or seven other districts that predated the kind of omnibus special district uh, enabling legislation in Florida. They did this very quickly and without, at least in my opinion, fully understanding the ramifications of doing so in that uh, Reedy Creek is a infrastructure heavy improvement district that uh, largely provides uh, kind of water management and uh, road management and infrastructure um, for the Disney properties. It carries a fairly large amount of debt to support this infrastructure and, it, and uh, the district taxes Disney as the, I think, 99% landowner of the, of the district to support that. Fast forward about a year um, to a few weeks ago, uh, the legislature came back and said, we can't eliminate this because it seems kind of bad in terms of putting the the state uh, on the hook for paying back uh, uh, multiple billions of dollars in uh, in bonds, and uh, the legislature passed in a, a special uh, session that uh, they would alter the governing arrangements of the Reedy Creek Improvement District to remove the local election of its governing board that will now be appointed by the governor and it removed some service delivery uh, abilities from the district. Reedy Creek is unique in that it was created in a special act of the legislature in the, I believe, 1960s. So it has a bunch of powers that no other special district in the state has because they were specifically written into law to do that. A large number of them appear to be uh, kind of at the behest of Disney wanting to or Walt Disney specific want specifically wanting to create Epcot as a city of the future, 
and run it as a city. And Reedy Creek would have given them, uh, Disney essentially the powers to do a lot of those things. Um, so they had some limited planning and zoning functions. They had the ability to operate a nuclear power plant, um, which was originally supposed to power Epcot, but was never built. They had the power to op- own and operate an airport because that would service Epcot. That was never built. Some, a lot of those have been um, kind of more unused powers have been removed. And Disney didn't complain very much. They had, I don't think they had any plans to, to build a, a small energy generating nuclear power plant uh, <laughs> anywhere on their property. Although if they did, uh, I know where we're going for our next vacation. It sounds very, very interesting. Yeah. So the, the big issue with Reedy Creek was the, the original dissolution in that the state really had no plan to unwind all of the obligations uh, of Reedy Creek. And there were, uh, there was large concern among the bondholders of who was essentially, who, who was essentially going to be on the hook for this. Was it going to be the state? Was it going to be the taxpayers of the two counties, largely in Orange County, um, though a little bit in, in Osceola County? The, that was the primary issue was who's going to do this stuff. The state's purview was no other um, kind of resort or amusement park set up in Central Florida has the kind of arrangement that Disney has. So why is this arrangement essential to the success uh, of Disney when, say, Universal Studios, which is just down the street, doesn't have a similar setup? That makes some intuitive sense, but there are all of these long-term obligations that Disney essentially has said they would, they're more than happy to tax themselves to pay for these improvements. And then how do we how do we unwind that? I think the state basically said we don't want to, but we do want to exert more direct control over Reedy Creek. How often does this kind of thing happen with the state trying to intervene in uh, in special district affairs? So it's not uncommon. Um, so special districts enjoy somewhat less powers than municipalities. So their their kind of rights to the extent that they exist are generally less than uh, a city or a county. Also complicating this is that special districts tend to go bankrupt far more often than uh, municipalities. Um, So there is this kind of existing structure of the state being a little more interventionalist with special districts in facilitating municipal bankruptcy, um, reorganizing special districts that may be failing. So this isn't out of the ordinary. The out of the ordinary component of this is that it seems to be at least some level of political retaliation, uh, which is much more uncommon. Typical intervention by the state is much more pragmatic of there's an issue, um, usually financial. How do we solve it, given the tools that the state has allowed local governments to access? So if you fast forward then, Chris, uh, you know, another year or two years, what, if any, would be the financial implications of the governor and the state having much more direct control over who's making decisions in Reedy Creek? So it depends. So my colleague up in Wisconsin, Manny Teodoro, likes to say that all policy is implementation, and this is the same. So if the governor appoints, uh, I think it's six or seven folks that have an interest in maintaining all of the functions that Reedy Creek does, then probably nothing changes very much. The who gets to decide over the relative level of service provision changes very much, but it's certainly to the detriment of those folks to uh, deprive Disney of service provision that they're more than happy to pay for 
if the, the governor appoints individuals who want to be much more activists and actively deprive Disney of some of these things, uh, that could be potentially bad, especially given that the, the long-term obligations that already exist are tied to um, being repaid for by Disney. So if these potential actions that are, are negative uh, impact Disney in a negative manner, they may not have uh, sufficient revenue to actually pay for these things or may feel like they don't have sufficient revenue to do that, which may lead to them altering decisions about where they want to invest corporate resources in terms of um, the parks and uh, filming and all those kinds of other things. Um, so it, it, the Reedy Creek saga ends up being an economic development kind of question of are these appointed officials by the, by the governor going to mess with economic development in central Florida in a way that uh, is bad for the Florida economy? Or are they going to essentially keep things going the way they are, which seems to be doing quite well for the Florida economy? And the old rule about tax policy, right, is that the thing business hates more than anything else is uncertainty with respect to tax policy and fiscal policy. And it. so it sounds like this is introducing a tremendous amount of uncertainty into their decision-making environment. Right. So a unique uh, aspect of special districts is that the apportionment of, uh, of voting rights can be along a bunch of different lines. It doesn't have to be one person, one vote. And in the Reedy Creek case, it was by land ownership. So Disney is the 99% landowner. They essentially decided who was on the board every year. Um, they were all exclusively Disney employees. But there's a, a low number of individuals who actually live within the district, and they're all Disney employees. Uh, so Disney exerted a, a large amount of control and certainty over what its taxes would be and what the kind of long-term obligations of the district would be. And they were matching those over some time horizon. Uh, that's now going to be a little bit more complicated. I wonder if more people are going to those meetings over there in Reedy Creek now. Right. Um, so I think that might actually be the case is... Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone was going previously. Right now, it, it might just be political theater. We'll, we'll find out. Yeah. So Chris, we've talked a lot about all of the different types of special districts, all of the different layers of government that special districts uh, can create. It takes a, a complicated local government landscape and in some ways makes it even more complicated. I can imagine that it's difficult for voters to understand all the different things that special districts do and how they fit into the the overall stack of government that they're paying for. What do we know about that, under, that citizen understanding of special districts and, and what the financial implications of that might be? So I, I would highlight the transparency issues. Uh, so this is something that uh, my students deal with all the time. So a lot of them are kind of frontline local government workers who have to deal with residents complaining about X, Y, and Z. Um, where often their complaints are not about what the municipality they work in are doing. It's about a public service being provided by another government. And the kind of perception of the resident is that the municipality is in charge of everything. Um, it's what they relate to. It's where they think about where they live and all those kinds of things. Um, when in actuality, that service is being provided by a, a special district or the county or what have you. So if we can't get individuals to who are consuming these public services to think about or to understand where those services are coming from, uh, we have a, a big transparency problem. 
uh, an accountability problem uh, for that uh, because you know there are elected and appointed officials making decisions about how much public services to provide and and how they should be financed uh, with not maybe not as much public input as there should be um, given the magnitude of uh, of those uh, or the importance of those of those services so figuring out a way to kind of increase the the visibility of these governments is kind of top of mind for me can you think of any examples of good coordination uh, among special districts. Clearly the challenge here is that you've got a lot of specialized governments doing a lot of specialized things, all drawing in many cases from the same tax base. The coordination is a challenge. When you think of good examples of that kind of coordination happening, is there any place that comes to mind? Sure. So uh, a great place for coordination is actually within water, uh, where we've separated out the collection and treatment of water and provision of water as a public service, uh, essentially away from the treatment and discharge of water back into the, the system. That's governed typically by a very complex network of municipalities and counties and special districts, um, all kind of linked together and, and essentially forced to coordinate with each other because we've separated out all of these functions from each other where I'll take the example of, of around here. Um, the city of Chicago takes water out of Lake Michigan. They treat it. They sell it to another entity who then sells it to another entity that may or may not be a special district or a municipality. We kind of have these complex production chains in which there has to be coordination. That tends to work fairly well because there are benefits to specialization. It's perhaps good that you have a, a water authority whose sole job it is is to make sure that you get clean water when you turn on your tap. There is some efficiency in economies of scale issue. We probably don't want particularly small producers in terms of that uh, because that function is expensive and complicated, um, but sufficient that we have you know governments of the right size. That level of coordination tends to work pretty well. In other areas, it tends to be a little more conflict-driven in which there are multiple providers of the same service that maybe don't coordinate. Um, and that's where we get, we run into trouble. We get duplication. We get perhaps um, taxes that are too high because they're supporting multiple governments doing the same thing, things like that. Anything else uh, that we want to make sure we get into? Perhaps maybe the the other thing um, in here is, is geography. Um, so special districts essentially can choose their borders however they like. They don't have to conform or generally don't have to conform with any other um, pre-existing uh, local government structures. So we can get pretty wild uh, changes in service provision and, and tax levels across space um, over very small amounts of space. So your neighbor might get completely different public services if they face a different collection of special districts than you do. And they might pay a vastly different amount um, because of that, um, which could potentially create some equity issues if we're consciously or unconsciously using special districts essentially to further divide metropolitan areas into some parts get some services and some parts get others um, in ways that are maybe not necessarily driven by demand. Professor Chris Goodman from Northern Illinois University, thank you so much for taking the time to share all of your insights on the wonderful, quirky, and sometimes downright strange world of special districts and state and local public finance. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Chris Goodman for joining us uh, for that really uh, interesting conversation. Um, I wanted to kind of segue a little bit, too, uh, based on some of the things we talked about. There was an article that caught my eye recently in the Washington Post. It's called uh, Gentrification by Fire, meaning wildfire. It came out uh, not too long ago, uh, earlier, earlier this month. And essentially, it's about how the, the West it fo- focuses on California and, and the wildfires, but in general, the Western region of the United States and the rate of wildfires chewing up homes and neighborhoods and and how the rising price, the rising cost of replacing those homes is leading to those who can't afford it not being able to come back and hence the the gentrification by fire heading. Um, I want to point out a couple of things in this article because I didn't know these these statistics um, because I think the, the first thing I thought was, well, I mean, who's to say, I mean, home prices everywhere have been rising. Of course, they're rising in California. And the article pointed out that the median price of a home in Sonoma County, which is north of San Francisco, it's part of wine country. um, And that's where the Tubbs fire was a couple years ago. Uh, The median price has risen risen by an average of more than 25% since the Tubbs fire. And that while no area of California has been immune from rising home prices, in recent years, the fire-scorched region north of San Francisco has outpaced many other parts of California in escalating housing costs. Again, larger theme is uh, is that it's becoming more expensive to rebuild for insurance costs, and, and of course, cost of building everywhere is, is increasing these days, pushing out those who can't afford it. What this reminds me of, I mean, aside from this larger issue of, of the increasing rate of wildfires and the, the the escalating damage that they do because we are building out into these little tentacles uh, of in parts of states where we weren't before. This actually reminds me a lot of a conversation we had not too, too long ago on this podcast about Florida and rebuilding after major hurricanes. And to me, it's, I mean, I don't know how many Californians and, and Floridans would want to be put in the same bucket, but to me, this is exactly the same issue. It's just that one is wildfire and the other is hurricanes. And Florida is a little bit I guess, farther ahead in the sense that the state has stepped in to essentially backstop the home insurance industry there. And uh, much like, and in Florida, a lot of insurers have either left, won't renew policies, uh, or or making it just too expensive, too prohibitive to renew policies for homeowners. And that, as the article points out, is has has been happening in California, and it's it's continuing to happen, and and it's becoming an issue. And so I, I... I, I just noticed that parallel. I mean, like I said, it's 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 the changing climate, and it's what whatever your you know natural disaster uh, is is more prone to happen in, in in your region. But it is contributing to this to escalating home prices just in in different ways. But bottom line, it's the gentrification issue is widening that gap between the haves and have-nots in these states. And that's, that is certainly a public policy issue, as is the idea of whether or not to back a home insurance and back to stop a home insurance industry just to, to keep people and their tax revenue in your borders. Justin, you have any additional thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought this one to our attention because it, it really, I think you're absolutely correct. It, it parallels a lot of the discussion that we've had about 
the very real consequences of, of climate change as it relates to public finance. The thing that I took away from this that, again, parallels some things we've discussed before, but really hammers away the, the, the central point that this really forces us to, to closely examine the role of insurers, particularly property casualty insurers, as central players in public finance. I mean, you could argue that that property casualty insurers are, are sort of the the most influential players in particularly state and local public finance that no one really knows about. They tend to own uh, large quantities of municipal bonds. They tend to be one of the largest institutional buyers of municipal bonds. The state insurance commissioners have a lot of say over when and where and how assets and liabilities are, are matched up by insurance companies within their within a state's borders. And that can have huge implications for who gets insured, what rates they're paying. And I don't say that critically at all. It's just that's just the economics of that business. It's it's just how it works. But I do think what you are seeing, and this is where the, the California and the Florida examples are are parallel, but also different in a really important way. I think in the, like you said, in the Florida example where the state has really become involved in, in backstopping pooled risk to try to make insurance affordable, or at least keep it from becoming completely unaffordable. There's, as I understand it, some efforts to do similar kinds of things in California, but in the absence of that, what we are seeing is insurers themselves. And and I know this from having had some conversations with some folks at some of the very large ones, you know, they themselves have, have become very sensitive to this and are mindful of their role in accelerating gentrification or making certain kinds of property unaffordable um, or whatever it might be. And that's not really in their in their business interest. It's, it's not something that they want to do because it, it concentrates risk in a way that's not good for their business. So they have every, every incentive to be an active player in trying to think about how they apply a anti-gentrification or equity or whatever lens it is that that they want to apply when they're thinking about where to write policies and frankly when and where to influence legislation at the state level which is something that they can also do very well so it, it really does it puts front and center the role of property casualty insurers in public finance which i think is a is a role that's really pretty underappreciated this story makes very clear when and where and how they can be um, you know, important players, and we ought to, I think, appreciate that maybe a little bit more than we often do. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter, at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.